With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. This is Lars. Thanks again for checking out my podcast. Enjoy your day and the show, and let's make America great again. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. You know, the job of the Supreme Court is to interpret the law, make decisions on things when the Congress has left things vague or unclear. So is it fair to call them an activist court, as Vice President Kamala Harris did on Friday, attacking the court and saying that they are an activist court. Actually, I think their worst activism was in Roe versus Wade, and I would even argue that the Obergfell decision on gay marriage was also a sign of an activist court saying, we found something in the Constitution that nobody else can find in there. I thought we'd talk about that with Mark Smith, who's a constitutional attorney, the host of the Four Boxes Diner podcast. Mark, good to have you back. Thanks, Lars, for having me on. A lot to talk about. Well, there is. Can we start with Kamala Harris, first of all? She's an attorney. She's a former attorney general for California. Does she have any business coming out as vice president uh, from the executive branch and publicly criticizing the top end of the judicial branch at all? Well, we all Americans have the right to an opinion, even the vice president. And even if your opinion is silly, you have the right to express it. Uh, Of course, Uh, She has the right to comment on the type of judges they want. But keep in mind, Lars, you know this and I know this well, which is that the liberals in America have a much different view of the role of judges than we conservatives do. The left views the judges, the courts in America, as another opportunity to advance their policy goals, regardless of what's actually written into the Constitution, regardless of what the law actually says. 
All the left wants is a bunch of judges up there. They're going to sue, serve as a super legislature so that when they don't, when the de- Democrats and liberals do not get what they want in the democratic process, whether it be involving abortion or gay marriage or whatever, they just pass the ball to the courts and say, well, now you give it to us because we, the people, refuse to do what we, the Democrats, want. Now the courts go out there and do it. And Kamala Harris and the rest on the left are very upset with this Supreme Court because, you know, this Supreme Court's trying to follow the law as it's actually written and not make stuff up as they go along. See, I was going to say when you said advance their policies, I was going to say the Democrats want the courts to write law. And it's is I mean, it's fair to say it's not the job of the courts. It's not in their purview to write laws, is it? Of course not. The the purpose of the courts is to interpret the law that they are given. And that law can be given to them either by we the people in the form of the United States Constitution, where all the people uh, had a say in a sense, or the law given to them, let's say, by Congress or other legislators to interpret. The job of courts is to interpret and apply the law to particular cases. That is it. If they don't like the law, well, it's not their job to fix it. That's just not their role in a republic system, which is what we have here, Lars. See, the only reason I ask about whether it was appropriate is I've had lectures over the years from lawyers who say, well, you know, I'm not supposed to be critical of the courts. We, we take their decisions. We say, well, I'm very disappointed in the Supreme Court's decision or whatever. But, but you know, most lawyers don't do that. I wish if Kamala Harris wants a federal right to abortion, she can march right over to Capitol Hill. I'll bet she won't do this and say, you folks aren't doing your job. you got a majority in the House. you got a bare majority in the Senate, counting her. Uh, you're not doing your job. Write a law on abortion. She could do that, and she'd ask, actually be asking the right agency to write a law, wouldn't she? Well, Lars, it even goes beyond that. If you think about it, how many years... Between 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, and today, (laughs) did the Democrats have complete control over Washington, D.C., and yet at no point in time did they decide to codify Roe v. Wade in federal law or otherwise? They didn't do it. Why is that? That's really the question, not what's going on now. If the Democrats really thought this was so popular and such a great idea, why did they wait five decades plus before they say, hey, maybe we should do something about this? One wonder. you You know the answer to that, Mark, because Congress has become lazy and it's effectively ceded its authority to the courts and said, if you guys will do it, you guys and gals will do it, then we don't have to. And we don't have to take the heat from our constituents, because if they had done that, if they had said, hey, we got a Democrat president, we got a Democrat majority in the House and in the Senate, and you're right, they've had plenty of opportunities, let's go ahead and codify Roe v. Wade against the possible day that I think everybody thought was going to come, where the Supreme Court would consider, do you actually find a right to abortion in the Constitution? And most of us who've read the document, even the non-lawyers like me, say, I don't find it anywhere in there. So they could have said, as a stopgap, we'll pass a piece of federal legislation. But then they would have had to take the heat that they got from their constituents saying, you passed a law on abortion. And and at that time, it would have been even easier for them to do it because they could have said, well, we're only backing up with legislation, what the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade already found. So they would have had a much easier time of it. Now they're going to have a really tough time, uh, even if they hold a majority in both houses next year, saying, well, we ought to codify you know, the Roe rights that are now non-existent because they never did exist. Uh, they'll, they'll have a really tough time pushing that through, I imagine.
Yeah, I think if you look at the politics of this, and I've spoken to many people of who, who, who've had children over the last you know, several years, Lars, and what's interesting, and I'm no expert on this particular topic, but I feel comfortable saying this, what I've been told is that with the rise of you know, full-blown color 3D imaging of ultrasounds, you know, the notion that uh, the fetus is something other than a baby is harder to make where people are actually able to see with these very detailed and vivid ultrasound images exactly what's going on inside the womb. And I'm told that as a consequence of that, people are a lot less likely to say, hey, that's just a bunch of cells. Yeah, they are. And and you're right. I mean, things have changed uh, f- from the time of 1973 when that was first decided. I just think there, all, all Harris is saying is that this is an activist court because it's not doing the kind of activism they want done. And, and that one, if the court ever went back, I mean, in, in decades when the court's composition changes, perhaps, and it starts doing activist things on behalf of the Democrat Party, the Democrats will be perfectly happy to accept that, won't they? Oh, of course, because, the, again, the left views the courts as outcome determinative. It's very easy for them to pick judges. Why? Because all they want are judges that are going to basically advance the left-wing agenda, regardless of what the law says. And that is, of course, why it's easy for them to pick judges. They can pick just about any law professor in America to sit on the Supreme Court, and they'd be fine with it. And it's much more difficult for conservatives to do that because they're not focused on the outcome as much as the process of deciding cases. And uh, whatever the decision and the outcome will be, it will be when it comes to conservatives because they're looking at the process of how you apply the law, and the left just cares about the outcome. I mean, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you cannot tell me what was her jurisprudence other than she was a a left-wing progressive judge that always ruled in favor of the left. There is no jurisprudence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that you can describe because she had none other than I'm going to vote for the liberal cause every time. Absolutely right. That's Mark Smith, constitutional attorney, host of the Four Boxes Diner podcast. Mark, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to jump into what I call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Now, earlier, I got a call from a gentleman who said his daughter came home from school, from high school, and that uh, she is now having to disrobe in the locker room, the girls' locker room, except there's a boy in the girls' locker room who says, I identify as a girl, doesn't dress like a girl, apparently hasn't had any surgery, don't know if he's taking the hormones or not, but this is part of this transgender issue that is really, it is infringing on the privacy rights of American kids, and it's offensive. And in fact, I get emails from people who say, hey, If I went up and disrobed in front of a young lady, that would be something that would land me in jail. And, uh, you know, Neil wrote in, Lars, I just heard the gentleman call about his daughter in gym class with a trans boy. If I, a male, walked into a group of women or girls and dropped my pants, I'd end up in jail for indecent exposure. Why is that any different than a biological male in the girls' gym class? I don't see it being any different at all. And on that note, let's go to Allison. Hey, Allison, thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. Welcome back from the swamp. You made it safe. Um, <laughs> I, I got back mind? from D.C. You're right. Yeah. Um, so what's on my mind is that I think I even called in last year when it happened. My son was met 
Uh, he's a senior now in Friday Harbor in the San Juan Islands, which is the most liberal county in Washington, I think. Met in the bathroom twice by a little girl who identifies as a boy. And I approached the principal right away. And the only thing that the principal could say to me was, well, it's legislation. This is what the legislation pushed through, that discriminating against someone who identifies as the opposite sex is discrimination. So at that point, my son's paralyzed. He, he can't say, get out of here. He can't say, this is the boy's bathroom. You don't belong here. Um, he did say those things. And, and I told the principal that I support him supporting himself to protect himself. Now my son is a senior and he's 18 years old. So what happens when this little girl decides, if she were to decide, that my son sexually harassed her for telling her to get out of the boy's bathroom. He's now legally an adult. We've now created a situation where a young man no longer is safe in the confines of a boy's bathroom. You're right. I mean, I, I, I don't see yeah, anything to disagree with there. That, I'm stuck. <laughs> yeah, you are. And, and I guess all that you could do is, is, is seek the school board and uh, and have people get on the school board who are willing to take a reasonable stance on this and say this is not allowable behavior we have to respect the privacy rights of girls and boys uh and and men and women as well because i think this has privacy implications for adults as well as kids but for kids you know that we set up special we try to set up special protections to make sure that kids are not exposed to things uh, that, that are either offensive or actually intrude into their privacy. And, and having set all that up, now we're, now we're seeing it torn down to meet a political agenda, both of individuals well, and some of the groups that are pushing this. Yeah, I want to bring awareness to the fact that this is, a, this is a legislation issue. This has been voted in. So when you go to the ballot box and you think about voting, Think about the fact that this was the voters' choice to do this to the youth of our state of Washington. And when you go in to support your child, because now he is the victim, or she is the victim, like the last caller was talking about, you have done an injustice to these children. And and that's the hardest part of it all, is that when it gets voted in and you have administration looking at you saying, hey, look, my hands are tied. I can't do anything about it. That is is a world I don't want to live in. No, and, and see, I disagree with their take that this is somehow a matter of law because you, you have a right to some privacy. Frankly, if the school district were to say we're not allowed to discriminate, then, Allison, if you want to take them at their word, do you know how to push back? Say, then you shouldn't have boys' and girls' locker room facilities at all. You should have one big locker room. And boys and girls have to use it because even the act of creating a boys' bathroom or boys' locker room and a girls' locker room is itself a, a, a specific act of discrimination. You're saying the boys go in here to, to undrobe or, or shower or whatever, and the girls go in there. Well, that is discrimination. You're saying the boys use this one, the girls use that one. And if this school district knucklehead says, well, we have to let the boys come in and disrobe in front of young ladies, and too bad if they don't like it, then say, then you're not allowed to maintain both a boys' locker room and a girls' locker room because that is a, that's another act of discrimination. We don't think of it that way. We say, you're being polite. You're saying boys over here, girls over there. But that is itself an act of discrimination, is it not? 
It is, absolutely. And now you've discriminated against my son, who is uncomfortable meeting a girl in a boy's bathroom at a urinal. And you've also discriminated against this young girl who says, I will not undress in front of a boy. You're discriminating against their private body. And that is unacceptable, too. But now we've gotten to a place where we're catering to what I would consider some mental issues. And we need to address that. (laughs) We can't ignore that. No, they are mental issues. And Allison, you know, I, I, I played a soundbite earlier from this guy who's, who's gay, and he says he's with a group called Gays Against Groomers because he says he wants to be who he is. He's an adult, but he doesn't want people within his community to be out there grooming kids. And Allison, this isn't anything new. I mean, it's just that society is now allowing it. I, I have gay acquaintances who f- 30 years ago, told me about what they called chicken hawks. Do you know what a chicken hawk is? No. A chicken hawk is a gay man, typically a gay man, who goes to underage clubs because he wants to meet 16-year-old gay boys. And, and, and he's attracted to that. And the ones that don't allow drinking that do cater to the underage crowd, you know, the kids who can't go to a place that has alcohol, uh, this is where those older men go. And I know people in the gay community who don't think much of that any more, Allison, than you and I would think of somebody my age or younger. I'm, I'm in my 60s now. But what would you think of a 45-year-old guy who hangs around trying to pick up even 18-year-old women? You say, well, you're kind of disgusting, right? Yeah, he's a predator. <laughs> right. And, well, if he's picking up 18-year-olds, I guess he can say they're legal. But if he's trying to hit on 16-year-olds, like when Jeffrey Epstein tried to hit on a 16-year-old girl in front of Donald Trump and Donald Trump gave him the boot from Mar-a-Lago, because he said, men your age should not be going after children, so knock it off, you're out of here. Well, we, we would say that as a society, and I'm telling you, there are people in the gay community who don't think much of that behavior. They, they find it disgusting. They find it immoral. And they find it wrong. Yeah, and the fact is, we, we got to get... What was that, ma'am? Go ahead. Not a gay issue. Yeah, this is not no. a gay, straight issue. This is an indoctrination to children who typically are experimenting with all kinds of things. Like, if you want to have blue hair or red hair or orange hair. But this has gone to a level of, we can cut your breasts off and you can be called a boy. And we can all just decide that that's... And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and your emails. We'll do that in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, when Donald Trump ran for office, he made great inroads among black and Hispanic voters. And I know this this really flabbergasted both the Democrats, but it also flabbergasted the Democrat Party, who have often treated black and brown uh, voters or citizens as though they own them outright, which I think fits right in with the party of slavery, party of slavery since 1828 and still going. Um, But having said that, because I give my, my Democrat friends a hard time, 
now the Democrats are losing big numbers of Hispanic voters. And they can't blame the orange man anymore. Uh, so they have to find something else. And then they start engaging in some crazy, almost self-destructive behavior, like sending the first lady of the United States, Dr. Jill Biden, out to give a speech in San Antonio. Very nice city. I've been there a number of times, and we've got a great affiliate there. And she proceeds to compare Hispanic Americans to tacos. And on that note, it is a pleasure to welcome back our friend Mike Gonzalez, who's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and author of the new book, BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike, welcome to the show. And how did it feel to you to make Dr. Jill Biden make that uh, characterization? Hey, uh, Lars, can you hear me well? Because I can hear uh, you five by five, buddy. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, you know, they, uh, this, is, this has been very long in coming. Uh, as, for, for, as the first lady, you know, she read, badly read something which a, a speechwriter wrote. Uh, and it was really, uh, it's just one more sign of how snake been, the, the, this, this White House is. It can't do anything right. Even the small stuff. It cannot do the small stuff right. Um, but uh, look, as you said, in 2020, President Trump did much better in certain parts of the country than he had done in in 2016. Uh, and, and the improvements, Hispanics are kind of like a, 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 a synthetic creation by the left, which is always talking about brown voters, uh, which is a term of the left, too. Uh, his, Hispanics that were created by the, for the Census Bureau, but they really, what you have to look at as Mexican-Americans in different parts of the country, in this case, southern Texas, which where you have, where you have, where you have what is called Tejano culture. They're, they're very proud of the culture, and they swung massively uh, towards Trump. I mean, like 30, 40 percentage points. He actually won a county that was 95 percent Mexican-American that had never been won by a Republican president. And then he also did well in southern Florida for very different reasons and with very different people, uh, Cuban-Americans. Uh, and then he did relatively well in central Florida with Puerto Rican voters, again, for their own different reasons. Uh, but there is, a, there is a theme to all this, and we can get into that. There's a realignment of the two parties, but I don't know if you want to get into that. We, we, we can, but, but Mike, let me go back to the beginning when you said, well, she read something written by a speechwriter. That almost, I mean, I've heard that from some of the people on the left who are defending Jill Biden. And I said, I don't buy that. And I'll tell you why I don't, Mike. I work with three great producers. And I'd be the first to tell you, it's radio. I make mistakes, and I try to correct them quickly. There are times my, my producers make mistakes. And there are times I could say, well, you know, I, I said that only because my producer put it in front of me. I got to tell you, Mike, I ain't Ron Burgundy. You know, what, what goes in front of me is important, but ultimately the words come out of this mouth, and this mouth has to take uh, responsibility for what I say. And you'll remember Ronald Reagan would take speeches and he, he got into a famous fight over some of the most famous words in politics. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. His own speechwriters wouldn't put it in the, in the script. His own staff was saying, Mr. President, you can't say something like that. That's too crazy. It'll make the Russians too mad. And he said, no, I'm going to say it. And he kept writing it back in. Ultimately, whoever says the words has to own those words. And you don't get to pass it off and say, well, yeah, it's a speechwriter and they decide what I say. If you say that, 
you shouldn't be city council person. You, sh- you, sh- you definitely shouldn't be president or first lady. No, and I take your point. And by the way, I have the edited version of the of, of the, the, the the Gorbachev speech in my office. I have the do the, you really? edited. I can wow. Yeah, I, I had a copy. A historian gave me a copy, uh, and it's really amazing. And he actually, he, it, 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 this was in the, on the way to the Brandenburg Gate when he turned to Secretary of State Schultz. He said, "I'm putting the line back in." He said, the boys at state are going to kill me, but I'm, going, I'm putting the line back in. <laughs> so, so your point is well taken. One of the most famous lines the president has ever spoken, right? Mr. Yeah. Gorbachev tore down this wall. And, and they, they just crossed it over. I have that in my, in my office. Okay, fair enough. What I'm saying is that that, that is a – I will go back, Lars. This is a small – this is a symbolic thing. It's, it's, it's a symbol – of how badly this White House is doing, but it doesn't really speak as to the the very durable and deep political realignment that we may be witnessing in real time, which is, to me, a much, much more interesting story. Well, and, and Mike, one of the reasons we're so tough on people who use ethnic or racial slurs is because, it, it at least in theory, it speaks to your actual feelings toward those people. You know, so if if there's some woman in your family and you're particularly unkind and you refer to her by the B word, you know, you, you say, holy cow, you said that about your sister-in-law or, or whatever. And, and you say that that says something about what you think when people easily let a slur. Uh, and, and I think that was a slur by Jill Biden, just slide right off their tongue and she even laughs about it. Uh, and, and then I think apologized later and screwed up the apology. But it, but it's saying something about what you think is acceptable, uh, which is very disturbing. And if that had been Donald Trump comparing Hispanic Americans to tacos, the the left would have never let you hear the end of it. They'd have been playing it all the way to his last day in office. Yeah, no, I look, obviously, the, the media uh, is very biased. I, look, I don't want to argue with you back and forth. <laughs> on whether the, 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 first, the, the first lady made a huge faux pas. I think when she pronounced bodegas, Bogadas. Everyone knows knows how to say bodegas, and you have to be pretty uh, isolated from everyday life to think it's Bogota. Um, It sounds more like Bogota, the capital of Colombia. Yeah, but look, again, going back to the political realignment we're seeing, we could be seeing something that really, it's almost like what we saw in 1850. The two parties we have today, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, we're born in that decade, and we still have it to this day. And we've seen other realignments, not as deep and, 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 and as, as, as significant as that one. But we may be seeing something similar now where the Republican Party, for years, people say it was a party of the rich, a party of, the, of, of corporate interests, is, is now trying to represent the, 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 the interests of working Americans who, who have no... Uh, who don't have the college accreditation that the Democrats have and so forth. And Democrats are, be, are becoming the, the or, or could become, let's put it this way, could become the party of the coastal elites, uh, the people who I think that's closer the to division it. of labor. Yeah, isn't, isn't you know, that closer so, to it? Because they seem to represent some elites, especially elites in office, and the two coastlines, and the rest of America, I, I don't think they give a fig 
about the rest of America, honestly. Uh, Mike Gonzalez is a good friend of the show. He's also the author of a brand new book, which is a good read, I can tell you. BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike, thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Now, if you want to take the time, I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Haven't even had a good naysayer call yet today. Naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and I'm glad to get to your calls a bit later at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at Lars larson.com and of course i'm glad to put naysayers all the way to the front of the line uh josh marquis is occasionally a naysayer although i don't think today i think we're on the same page today josh welcome back to the program thank you Lars. the former district attorney of clatsop county josh a few moments ago I, i'd read a letter from a, an emailer who asked me is it an act of war to have a hundred thousand people killed uh in america by chinese fentanyl and i said well I'm not a lawyer, but I would I would say if somebody, you know, in framing it that way, I, I'd actually have to agree with the notion. But we ought to talk about what's going on right now involving overdoses, which last year killed more than 100,000. I'm sure the number will be north of 100,000 this year, even though just a couple of years ago it was in the 70,000 range, which is shocking enough. The problem is those in charge are going after this by going after the pharmaceutical companies. I've got no real dog in the fight there, just for my audience's background. But um, but you've said that, that they're really chasing the wrong dog, as you put it. Yeah, and I'm not alone in this. Um, the American Medical Association uh, thinks this, and I think I sent you a graph. I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. There is a huge problem in the United States with opioid overdoses, and it's, it's growing enormously. This graph that I'm looking at shows that we now are looking at deaths probably actually over 140,000, and to compare in 2000, that rate was only 40,000, so it's triple or more. The question is, where are these coming from? Because most people who you know, read or seen anything on television uh, or newspapers know that there was an overprescription crisis in the United States, particularly in the late 90s and early O's, particularly because of a drug called OxyContin, which was manufactured by a company that is now essentially in bankruptcy, uh, owned by the Sackler company called Purdue Pharma. And the, the claim was and continues to be that uh, a combination of greedy pharmaceutical companies and reckless doctors uh, grossly overprescribed these drugs and got lots and lots of people hooked, and, and many of them ended up dying. And there is some truth in that, no question. However, the reality is that starting in about 2008 to 2009, doctors and pharmaceutical companies and pharmacies started radically changing their behavior. I'm looking at the same chart, and uh, the both prescription rates and, and overdose rates for prescription opioids started dropping in 2011 and are now down to a level that hasn't been seen in probably 15 years. At the same time, the rates for, um, for fentanyl and heroin and methamphetamine have skyrocketed. And you're right, Lars, most of uh, heroin and fentanyl comes through two countries, Mexico and probably in many cases a rich states in China. The drugs are different because they're totally synthetic. They can be made without having any having any fields or you know or, or cocoa leaves or anything else. Yeah. 
right? Like or poppies, or or or, or in the case of cocaine, you know, methamphetamine is a totally synthetic drug, as is fentanyl. So uh, the latest in Oregon was that Oregon is literally the worst in the country in overdose rates, partly because of Measure One Ten, which functionally legalized all drugs. Uh, as a result of a very heavily uh, funded campaign in 2020, which Oregonians voted for overwhelmingly. I and a few other people opposed it. And then we have Shamia Fagan, the current Secretary of State, trying to politically weaponize this by saying that what we need to do is we need to really crack down on doctors in Oregon, Oregon. doctors and, and pharmacies, because they're the real cause of the current. And that's just complete nonsense. Uh, the issue is illegal fentanyl, which is being transshipped through China and Mexico. I don't think the Chinese government is doing it per se, but I don't think it's breaking their heart that it's happening. Um, And the fact of the matter is that trying to go after legitimate pain patients uh, at a a time when doctors are being very careful, anyone who goes to a doctor knows these days, is just insane. It's just not the right target. Well, and and when they do that, the governments and the lawyers like to do it because there's a big pile of cash there. Whereas if they went after China, there's no cash there. I mean, you can't effectively sue China uh, for illicit drugs that are officially illegal. And I don't know that you could sue Joe Biden and say you open the door to all these illegal aliens that are transporting the drugs across the border. So they go after where the money is rather than where the problem is. And, and I think some of this, Josh, is an attempt to, and you tell me what you think of this. I know there are parents who want to say, why my son you know, or daughter uh, broke an ankle or broke a wrist and went to the doctor and got a few OxyContin pills, and then they were shooting heroin within a few years. And it's the doctor's right. fault that they went to heroin. I would say, no, your son or daughter discovered that sometimes d- the drugs for legitimate medicine turn into good party drugs. And when you run out of the party drugs and you find out you can buy fentanyl, the last big seizure they made recently, it came out to $5 a pill. It's a cheap high. It's also a, a deadly oh, it's, it's high. Literally it's literally 100 a times high. more powerful than oxycodone. So you're going to blame this and your kid's use of a party drug that they can get very inexpensively because of a collision of all kinds of things. China, open borders policy, illegal aliens, uh, lack of law enforcement, effective legalization of hard drugs and all the rest of that. Josh, thanks very much. That's the former district attorney of uh, Clatsop County. Glad to have you with me. Always glad to get your calls. Naysayers go first at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. 
You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want you to consider this question. Kids are young and impressionable, and they're not mature by definition. And that's why we don't let them sign contracts, make major life decisions until they're 18. In fact, they can't make minor life decisions like getting a piercing or a tattoo. In some cases, can't even get a, you know, go to the sun tanning parlor. Uh, they can't buy booze. They can't buy a gun. They can't do a lot of things. And we certainly don't let them vote till they turn 18. So why would states, why would states not be on the right track by saying, we're also not going to let you use puberty blockers or seek gender reassignment surgeries Terry Schilling joins me now, president of the American Principles Project. Terry, this seems like one of those well-duh questions uh, that I occasionally come up with, except that in this day and age, the well-duh questions are, oh, no, 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 we should let those kids do all of those things, at least one quarter of the American, uh, you know, not not a 25%, but one part of the American political landscape says, oh, yeah, kids are perfectly capable of making those decisions. Welcome back, by the way. Bill, thanks so much for having me, Lars. You know how much I love talking with you. I learn something every time. But listen, what we're dealing with right now is exploitation of our children. Uh, The nature of the progressive movement is they take advantage. They push things to the limit. They go outside. They are extra constitutional. They are extra legal. Uh, This never should have been allowed to happen. Children are not old enough to consent to sex. So there's no possible way that they should be able to consent to something as permanent as a sex change. However, that's what's been happening in this country for the last several years is we're we're giving what really bothers me about this entire transgenderism movement is the propaganda and the and the the propagandistic terms that they use. They call uh, when they remove the uterus of a healthy young girl who has gender dysphoria, they call it a gender affirming hysterectomy. When they remove her breasts, they call it a gender-affirming mastectomy. This is absolute insanity, and people need to go to jail for it. People need to be bankrupted over this. This is malpractice. It's exploitation. And thank goodness, thank God, in fact, for Governor Ron DeSantis and his leadership on this. This, this would not be happening. Uh, Frank, Lars, we've had, this, we've had conversations about these, these procedures that have been going on to kids. We've been going through a few decades now of the abolition of the family. The left has been very successful for it. But what we're seeing is a new Republican Party that is hell-bent on restoring the American family, on protecting our children. And so we're just so blessed and lucky to have someone who's as courageous and brave and, and, and such a leader as Ron DeSantis is actually leading the charge against this. Well, and I'm so glad to see this joint committee of Florida's two big medical boards. And they voted last week to draft this rule that would ban puberty blockers. And I've always told people, if when you're 18, go ahead, do whatever crazy thing you want with your body. Don't ask me to pay for it, and don't ask me to sanction it or approve of it. I don't. But but don't do any of this stuff on minors, In the, at least protect the kids when they're kids. So this is the Florida Board of Medicine and the State Board of Osteopathic Medicine. They voted on Friday of last week to proceed with this plan that would bar anybody under the age of 18 from receiving sex reassignment surgery or taking hormones. I think that's reasonable. And if you say, well, when are you going to let them do it? When they're 18, they can do whatever crazy thing they want to do. It also surprises me that so few of the doctors who do this uh, are getting questioned by people in the media because 
Terry, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, you know, I still follow Twitter. I'm on Truth uh, Social. I'm on a bunch of the social media. I saw one of the saddest videos I'd ever seen over the weekend. It was a young lady testifying, and she was talking a young, young former lady, I guess, uh, you know, who decided to transition to male, had her breasts removed, and she said, you know, two years later, she's still having medical problems. As a result, she's now a young woman. She was a girl when this happened, and she said. This, this, you know, this mutilated my body, and she now regrets having done it, and I, and I guess she's hoping she can somehow restore it. But that was very sympathetic. You don't see the mainstream media doing stories on, on the gender reassignment nonsense that goes wrong when an immature child makes the decision to do it, and then within a couple of years, literally, is now regretting the decision. And and you'd think this is the kind of story, when I worked in TV news, you loved stories that were, you know, that, that really tugged at people's heartstrings. Say, look at this poor girl. She was encouraged to make this decision and encouraged by people who should never have had access to her to do that. And she did it, and now she regrets it. Isn't that sad? And, and, and yet the mainstream media won't do those stories for the most part because they know that that, that, that jumps outside the, the current conventional wisdom of the politically correct left. That's exactly right. You have a, a few things going against us in this movement. Um, you have the profits, right? And if you look at the mainstream media, you look at who sponsors these news shows, it's all the big pharmaceutical companies that are making money off of these hormone treatments, right? They're make Abby. They're, they're the company that makes the, the chemical castration drug known as Lupron. This is the puberty blocking drug that they use. They advertise on all of these major news networks, so it's against their interest to expose them. We used to have this thing in America called investigative journalism, and what they yep. would do is they would uncover exploitative practices and corrupt business owners who were taking advantage of people. But somehow or another, those people don't exist anymore. You don't have these, you know, rookie journalists who are out there uncovering this, trying to make a name for themselves. I don't know why. I think that a lot of them have been indoctrinated into this gender cult that, that you know, in college and everything. They, they really do view gender as a harmful thing that needs to be destroyed as an institution in our society. But it's, it's unthinkable. It's interesting, right, that, that there are thousands of people across the country, across just in America, and we're not even talking about Europe and the globe broad, broadly, thousands of people in America have gotten these sex change procedures and have come to regret it, and they did it while they were kids. And no one's telling their story. Why not? It's a yeah, fascinating it, it, story. It, needs it to be is. Told. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. And, and I guess you could say, well, if we're going to go out and do a story about somebody who made the transition and now thinks it's the best decision they ever made, fine, show me that person. But an awful lot of the people who go through this, by all accounts, even the psychological studies that were done to these people years ago, they'd say an awful lot of them find out I've done the transition and I'm still unhappy with my situation. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like a very good recommendation, does it? No, it's not. And that is the thing that no one's really talking about, is that these sex change procedures, these, these chemical castration drugs that we're putting our kids on, they actually do nothing long-term to improve the health or, or psychological health, uh, health of these young kids. They That's have really no sad. impact. In fact, with so many of these kids, their suicidal ideation increases once they realize that they're not actually the gender that they were trying to transition. So once, when you're a male, right, and you identify as a female and you alter your body, you get on these drugs, and then you realize 
you're never actually going to carry a baby in your womb because you don't have a womb. You're yep. ne- in, in that case, Terry, I'm up against the break, but that's Terry Schilling from American Principles. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails in just a moment in the next segment, but I want to talk to Professor Alan Dershowitz, who's a civil liberties lawyer and expert, professor of law. You know he's an emeritus at Harvard Law School, and the book he's written, one of the books he's written most recently is Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Hashtag Me Too. Professor, it's good to have you back on. Well, thank you so much. And yesterday, of course, I showed that although it was hard to prove innocence, it was not impossible because the woman who accused me then admitted, admitted that she uh, may very well have misidentified me and confused me with somebody else. And, Professor, I wanted to bring that up. This is the lawsuit or the the accusations made by Virginia Jeffrey. And I feel for Ms. Jeffrey because I think she was a victim, just not a victim of you. But proving a negative, proving you didn't do something, that's got to be one of the toughest things that any attorney. And and let me ask you this, Professor. Let me skip right to this. Are, Are you able now to talk about this case? Because this case... You know, the Epstein case with Jeffrey and, uh, you know, Ms. Maxwell and everything else. This thing has been one of the most troubling for a lot of us because we see uh, it sounds like solid accusations that uh, that a man now dead, uh, whether by his own hand or by uh, or by uh, somebody else's hand. uh, That's that's another matter, uh, because I don't think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. But this guy did evil things. He had a woman help him do those evil things. And yet. Nobody gets prosecuted except Maxwell, and I think she deserved to be prosecuted. But how is it we've got to the point, before we talk about your innocence, how do we get to the point where you have a major high-profile guy who's friends with very uh, wealthy people and very powerful, politically powerful people like Bill Clinton, and uh, and nobody except Maxwell gets prosecuted? Well, certainly it's possible that nobody knew about this. I knew Jeffrey Epstein before any of these allegations came forward. I was introduced to him by the Lady Rothschild and told by Harvard professors to to make sure that I treated him well because he was contributing $30 million to Harvard. He used to conduct seminars at Harvard with Nobel Prize winners. Nobody had any idea that he had a, a secret private life. And, you know, once that came out, I terminated my personal relationship with him completely. Others did not. Um, uh, President Clinton continued to uh, have relationships with with him, uh, uh, went on his plane, presumably for charitable purposes, uh, uh, other people as well. Um, But, you know, it's certainly possible that a woman like Gouffre could be a a victim as well as a victimizer. And what I hope is going to happen, there are a lot of sealed materials. There are a lot of secrets. A lot of depositions, a lot of videotapes, they all remain sealed. I want every one of them out. I waive all of my privacy rights. Why why could I fight back when no one else was willing to fight back? Because I've done absolutely nothing wrong. I've never flirted with another woman. I've never touched another woman during the relevant time period. So I have nothing to hide. And I want everything out there. I would hope the media makes demands. Let us see these videotapes. Let us see these uh, depositions, then we can get to the whole truth. And the whole truth is what I want to get out. And I was hoping to have a trial, but, you know, she basically made an admission and a confession, uh, which was an offer I couldn't refuse, obviously. And so uh, I think now uh, my name has been cleared completely. Uh, But there are other people, and I think the public has the right to know whether other prominent or important people were involved. So let's open up everything to the public. No secrets, nothing hidden, nothing suppressed. Now, Professor, I've confessed to you before I'm not an attorney, so forgive my ignorance on this, but 
during the trial of Maxwell, they had one of the young ladies, and, I, and her name escapes me, but she was testifying. And she said, yes, Ms. Maxwell told me that I was just perfect for Jeffrey and his friends. And it occurs to a lot of us who are not even lawyers, you say, well, then the next logical question is, who were these friends? Of course. And of did course. any of them actually have sex with you or abuse you? And you're, you've got a witness in the dock under oath who could tell you that. And the how is it a question like that doesn't get asked? Well, it should have been asked. And everybody should be asked under oath, uh, every one of the women uh, who they had sex with. But they have to be prosecuted for perjury if they lie. And, uh, you know, uh, they're... The, the government never called um, Virginia Gufre as one of the witnesses in the Maxwell case. That's a fact, uh, even though she was the primary accuser uh, in the case. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, did the government not believe her? Uh, so, you know, you, the government has to make a decision uh, because it can't put on false witnesses or it can't put on truthful witnesses and ask them questions, which would then make them into false witnesses. So, uh, I was hoping for a trial. I wanted this all to come out. I wanted nothing to to remain secret because I have absolutely nothing to hide. Uh, one of the reasons I was able to fight this, unlike other people, is I have nothing to hide. I'm not Bill Clinton. I'm not <laughs> Prince Andrew. I'm not people who have things in their background. I've never had an inappropriate sexual relationship in my life. So I could fight back. And I did fight back, and she then finally made the admission that uh, was publicized yesterday, namely that she may have mistaken me for somebody else, that this was a case of mistaken identification from the very beginning. I'm talking to Professor Alan Dershowitz. His latest book is called Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Hashtag Me Too. Professor, because I got you here, I know you've got a commitment coming up. We'll let you go on time. But I, I smelled a rat. And here's the rat I smelled. I don't think much of Jim Comey. I think he deliberately set up uh, General Flynn. I think he was he, he should have been pushed out of the FBI. And I don't know if you and I agree on that or not. Should I smell a rat when the co-lead counsel in the Ghislaine Maxwell prosecution is Jim Comey's daughter? I don't blame. I don't ever blame daughters for the sins of their fathers or fathers for the sins of their children. <laughs> so, no, I don't. I don't smell a rat. Uh, she has a good reputation. Um, her father, um, I think, somewhat less so uh, recently. I, I've met him. I've known him. But uh, some of the things he did uh, in the lead up to the 2016 election and other things, you know, raised serious questions about his judgment. But I've never heard anything that would uh, in any way affect the judgment of of his daughter. She is highly well, regarded as an effective and, and, prosecutor. But look, you're Professor, entitled to be suspicious, obviously. I, I'm just suspicious because it just makes me wonder why that question never got asked. But congratulations on the book. Congratulations on finally getting to prove a negative, uh, and that is that yep. you aren't guilty of anything. Professor, I'll let you go because I, I know you've got another commitment, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it very much. You bet. His book is called Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Hashtag Me Too. He is Professor Alan Dershowitz, civil liberties attorney and expert, professor of law and emeritus at Harvard Law School, New York Times bestselling author. I want you to think about this as well, because I've covered on this show 
accusations where children have accused their teachers. And then later we found out they were doing it out of some kind of animus. They were they were angry at their teacher. In one case I can think of, two little girls who accused their teacher of sexual crimes against them and then had to admit we were just mad at him about a grade or something that happened in class. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine how hard it is. If you're accused of doing something, how do you prove you didn't do something? How do you ever prove a negative? And now he's freed of those accusations that were made by Virginia Giffrey or Guffrey, uh, however you pronounce her name. In any case, he is free from that. His book is called Guilt by Ac- Accusation. Your, your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to get your calls. Always glad to have you vote in our Twitter poll. If you want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. And a dial in, 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go right to the head of the line. Now, Dr. Roger Klein, I think, knows he's an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA Working Group. He's also the former medical director of molecular pathology at the Cleveland Clinic and a former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Doc, welcome back to the program. Hi, Lars. My audience knows... Um, my audience knows that I always disclose if I have a dog in the fight. I think Anthony Fauci is one of the most evil people on the planet. I'd be glad to tell you why, although I think you can imagine. So when I heard that he's announcing his retirement, but he's going to stay through the end of the Joe Biden administration, I wanted to get your take on why he's leaving, what has prompted this announcement at this point, And if he's going to leave, why announce he's going to leave two and a half years from now? Yeah, that that that's a great question as to why announce it now I and mean, why he's leaving. I, the the first the first obvious point is that he's in his eighties, and you know, I mean, you don't you don't stay in these jobs forever. Um, I think I think there are probably a number of uh, a number of reasons that that he's uh, he's going to leave. It's an interesting point that uh, you know why 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 announce you're you're going to leave so early and and tie it to a political figure. Do you think that perhaps he's trying to do it because he expects that when, as we expect the Congress to go Republican this fall, that in the beginning part of of next year, you're going to see investigations of Dr. Fauci and some of the sleazier things that he's been involved in might actually be revealed. And who knows, he might even be indicted for them. Do you think that he'll take he thinks that that announcing that he's going to be leaving, but leaving a couple of years from now, uh, he believes that that'll take some of the pressure off of him? Uh, I, it, that if the Congress changes it, it will, he's going to face some intense scrutiny and, uh, maybe, uh, maybe. You're breaking up on me just a little bit, Dr. Klein, and I want people to hear what you're saying. Sorry about that. Well, I, my, my is. You know, this break, let's see if we can get Dr. Klein on a better line. And while uh, Dusty is doing that, I'll tell you why I think Fauci is especially dangerous. Dr. Fauci, under his watch, has not only allowed but encouraged gain-of-function research. And when it was done in the United States, they determined that it was so darn dangerous that even during the presidency of Barack Obama, Obama decided we can't allow this stuff to go on. So they shut it down. So what happened was there were projects that moved that gain-of-function research, the dangerous gain-of-function research, from the United States and universities and working groups here to places 
elsewhere, like China. And for the life of me, I still do not understand. It's one thing to say we want to come up with a better cure for this or that or the other thing. It's entirely another to say we want to come up with a better disease and one that will attack humans. Dr. Klein, I want to ask you, am I off base in believing that Fauci, because under his watch, we've seen things like gain-of-function research funded by taxpayers in a Chinese lab that may well have had something to do with the, uh, with the uh, you know, COVID outbreak that has killed millions of people worldwide and a million people here. Am I wrong to see Fauci as being one of those responsible? Yeah, I, I guess I don't... Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I would, I would go that far, right? I mean, in terms of being responsible... I think that he's going to have to answer questions. And I didn't hear the, the last part because we, we re- reconnected, so I didn't hear what you said previously. But in response to your, the, the question you'd asked earlier when we uh, broke up, I think, you know, I think that it's clear that if the Republicans take over Congress, as many expect that they will, he, he's going to have intense scrutiny over some of these actions and activities that he's going to, uh, to be uh, it could be asked to explain, and I, it's, it's going to be a, probably a, an unpleasant uh, prospect. Uh, you know, I, I mean, think, people do, I, I think Dr. Fauci is actually well-intentioned, and, and if things didn't work out, um, you, know, you know, in retrospect, it's very easy to be, uh, to be critical, and I think, um, and, and, and I think that uh, he's going to, uh, to, to be uh, heavily scrutinized for um, for for a lot of things uh, in, in the, over the past uh, several years. Okay, let, let me try it prospectively then, Dr. Klein, because you and I usually agree on things, but I'm curious, what is the positive reason to do gain-of-function research on a disease and say, let's make the disease that doesn't currently infect humans? Forget about COVID, but I know you're going to hear COVID in that uh, description. What is the reason to say, let's turn a disease that doesn't infect humans into a disease that does infect humans? What, what's the positive yeah. use of that? Well, well I think there, is, there, there probably isn't positive use to what you just said, but I'm not sure that was the purpose of the research. And so that's why you know, I, I'm not privy to, to all the details of, of what was done, and I haven't, haven't focused on this, but I think it's important to do virology research. Uh, and no, I don't think we should be taking uh, benign viruses and, or other organisms and making them uh, capable of infecting humans. But I don't know that that was the purpose of the research. Sometimes, you know, if we don't study things, we don't learn uh, about them. We don't learn how to, how to, how to manage them. We don't, we don't understand how they function. So I, I don't want to look at scientific inquiry with, uh, with, in, in hindsight after a pandemic um, with uh, with that bias where uh, where suddenly some, somebody is faulted as, uh, as having caused something when in fact the the, um, the purpose and and what what was done really was unrelated we do have to be sick and I, I mean there were problems in that lab that very much I think we're re- that lab was problematic because of complaints and safety issues and, yep. and I think that really needs to be scrutinized well and for example one of the earliest things we found out at the beginning of covid once we realized there was the wuhan institute of virology was the u.s state department had actually you know our guys on the ground in china had written memos i think it was 2019 it might have been 2018 where they were saying to the boss back in dc hey boss this lab here is really sloppy they don't run well they tend to have leaks and problems and and other things that are going wrong be aware of that 
which is, is I guess, what the people on the ground at the State Department in, or at the uh, embassy in China should be doing. Keep an eye on the on the Chicoms and say, if they're doing dangerous stuff, tell us about it. They did. And then apparently NIH went ahead and funded research at that lab, which seems, you know, not just in 2020 hindsight, but if, if somebody told you today, hey, there's a lab in XYZ country and they're really sloppy and they're working on dangerous viruses and they've had some re- releases or, or things like that, uh, if we're funding research there, we should probably get out of there or address this in some way. That's prospective, not not reactive, not not looking back in the rearview mirror. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so, so there's two aspects. So first, I 100 percent agree. And I actually was much more troubled by that by by those facts that you're discussing that than I think a lot of others. Uh, it didn't get a lot of attention, and I think it should have gotten more. When you know a lab is, un- is not compliant and has safety issues in a, in a, in a, uh, in a country that, uh, where we don't have a lot of control, I think that, that, that's very problematic. The other question is, is it really wise to be, uh, to be sending U.S. dollars into, uh, into what, what I think most people, at least now, are starting to acknowledge is a country that, if, if not an explicit enemy, is, is definitely a country with which we, we don't agree on many things and have certain um, uh, 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 conflicts. And so, you know, should we be sending money to, to do virology research in a communist country when we know that the, the purposes for which they may use it are very different than yep. we would probably intend. I think that's a smart way to put it. Dr. Roger Klein from the FDA's Working and Health Group. Dr. Klein, thank you very much. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. We endeavor on a daily basis to serve the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, the Pacific Northwest, with honestly provocative talk. And I have to tell you something. I'm glad that we have electric power in this region. The problem is we've got politicians right now who are uh, from the left for the most part, although there are a few Republicans who do this as well, who are both simultaneously saying it's really, really hot outside. So please make sure you restrict your use of air conditioning uh, at the same time that they're telling you. And by the way, buy an electric car each one of which needs 50 or 60 kW shoved into a battery to get it even a couple of hundred miles down the road. Now, if that kind of thing makes sense to you, I'd be glad to hear from you because I'm a naysayer on that all day long and twice on Sunday, which is why this crazy idea of tearing out the Snake River dams has now been around for a long, long time. But it seems to be picking up steam, so I thought we'd talk about it with Todd Myers, who's the environmental director with the Washington Policy Center. Todd, good to have you back, and I, I hope you're conserving your electric use and leaving your thermostat set at, say, 76 or 78, so all the people with electric cars have plenty of fuel for their Tesla. Yeah, that's exactly right, and what's and the irony is, is that we are pushing in Washington State and elsewhere to have more electric vehicles. There's a plan to have basically a hundred, or excuse me, a million electric vehicles in Washington State by 2030. And a study from the Pacific Northwest National Labs found that in the summertime, adding those electric vehicles with the current electrical generation would double prices during peak hours in the summer. Imagine now if you actually reduce the electrical demand in Washington state, what will happen to those uh, electricity prices? Yeah, because right now, Todd, I'm already seeing car enthusiasts. I know I don't want to get too far off the Snake River dams, 
But I've seen articles in car enthusiast uh, publications online where they're saying, yeah, this electric car, if I charge it at home on the special deal I get there, it's not too terribly expensive. But the minute you leave your driveway and go somewhere else, if you go to a, a car charging location that actually charges you for the service, which has, I, I think there's no way to keep giving it away for free. They say it's a, it's getting to be about a push versus buying gasoline for a comparable gasoline car. The the deal isn't there anymore. And, and as you've suggested, it's going to get even worse uh, because electric rates are likely to go up as they keep shutting down uh, our means of generation. And if we tear out these Snake River dams, that only accentuates the problem. That's exactly right. So one of the arguments they make is, well, that's okay. We can replace the electricity with wind and solar. And so I did an analysis of when the Snake River dams generate electricity as opposed to wind and solar. And the wind in Montana blows mostly in the middle of the day, and the wind in Washington State blows mostly in the middle of the night. But when we need the electricity is actually in the in the morning as people get up and in the evening as people get home. And wind doesn't blow at either of those times very much. It blows some, but not very much. And so in order to replace the electricity from the Snake River dams, you'd have to massively overbuild because the wind uh, even when it is blowing, doesn't blow very much during those times. And then you add on top the electric vehicles and the increased demand you get in the evening when people come home and plug in their cars, and it just exacerbates that problem. This is the sort of recklessness, I mean, that we're seeing in the gas prices right now, where it's, you have a theory about how things work, but it's inflexible and very fragile, and when that when something breaks, you see massive skyrocketing prices that people then have to deal with. Well, and, and I've also seen people, and they call the show as well, and I'm kind of a nerd on this, Todd. Uh, they say, well, we'll just store the electricity. And they say, we'll either use big batteries or we'll use pumped storage. And I say, both of those are hideously expensive. Have you calculated that into the costs that you're estimating for electricity for driving all these electric cars and all these electric homes because we're going to ban the use of natural gas? And they say, oh, no, no, no. The government will do that as though, you know, things built by the government is built with a different uh, dollar than the dollar that you're paying as a taxpayer, which, of, of course, I think is foolish. Well, there's two things there. One is is that you're essentially double paying for that electricity. You're paying to generate it, and paying to generate it using wind and solar is more expensive than the Snake River dams. The Snake River dams are actually some of the least expensive forms of electricity in the whole BPA system. But the second thing is um, <clears throat> that you know you can't build up enough, and and um, and the only so what people then say is that you can go to the the government. Well, I just wrote a piece last week that I was reading several reports, including the most recent report about the Snake River dams, and all of them say, well, we'd have to get the federal government to spend the money. And that seems like free money, but then you think, oh, wait a minute, but I'm paying for somebody's stuff in Alabama. And the whole notion that what the way to pay for something is to plunder somebody else in the United States, to steal as much as you can from other taxpayers to subsidize what you want, I just think is fundamentally un-American. Now, let's go back to the reason that is the most common reason given why we should tear out the Snake River dams, uh, give up the irrigation, give up the power generation, give up the transportation, give up the recreation, everything else that goes with those dams because it's a, it's a, and the flood control and everything else. The justification is usually, well, we're going to save the salmon. 
Uh, and they say because the salmon are disappearing as a result of the dams. Todd Myers, who's with the Washington Policy Center, he is the center's environmental director. We'll be back in just a moment. Todd, thank you very much for the time. Democrats have let the radical left take over their party, and now Americans are fleeing the Democrat Party. We'll get to that in your calls up next on the Radio Northwest Network. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that Whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, the big tech companies, you know, companies like Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft are some of the country's biggest businesses. So it's really no surprise that they have a lot of influence in Washington, D.C., probably some money to throw around as well. But are they dictating which laws should come into play when it comes to intellectual property, which would be hugely significant, as you can imagine, for companies like that? Seton Motley joins me now, president of Less Government. Hey, Seton, welcome back to the show. Howdy, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'd be doing better if Joe Biden wasn't declaring that every Republican in the country is a threat to democracy. And He's would a somebody, uniter, not a divider. He's, he's a uniter. Would somebody inform him that we are not a democracy? We're a federal republic? Well, 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 someone, will someone please tell Fox News that because they're doing it too. Uh, the old joke is, a democracy is two foxes and a chicken voting on what's for dinner. <laughs> That's a good one. So yeah. what? Uh, tell me about this, though. Let's talk intellectual property. I actually want to talk about what we would plan to talk about with you. I usually take you off on some rabbit trail somewhere. But um, <laughs> is, is big tech actually making intellectual property laws kind of useless these days? Well, not only are they doing it now, they did it uh, God, 11 years ago now. 2011, the America Invents Act which you and I have talked about, the stupid patent trial and appeal board, yep. which, which it created it in the patent office. So the patent office issues you a patent, and the, the, in the same office, the patent trial and appeal board says, hey, we were just kidding, that patent's invalidated. Um, <laughs> and and the, the Supreme Court actually ruled that bold body unconstitutional, but of course, did they get rid of it? No, they just added a new layer of unconstitutionality. Let's see, because what it is, it's, it's a judicial function in the executive branch. It's a separation of powers. You can't do that. And the Supreme Court said, yep, it's, a, it's, a, it's the executive pretending to be the judicial, but we're not going to get rid of it. We're going to add in a, a layer of unconstitutionality. We're going to have the executive branch leader of the, of the patent office review the decision. No, that doesn't solve the constitutional problem. But, it, but like 83 or 84% of patents are overturned at PTAP. So what big tech does is they file dozens and dozens of challenges at 200, it costs $200,000 per to defend yourself. And they just swamp these little, you know, inventors with millions of dollars of challenges. And they just end up having to forfeit their patents. Um, plus it, it, it changed first to invent to first to file. And you have I was going to mention that one because, Seton, I want my audience to understand. It used to be you went out and invented something, and if you could prove you were the inventor of that innovation, whatever, better mousetrap, whatever it happened to be, that you could say, I invented this, you know, I worked on it hard, 
But Here's somebody else finds out about it and and says, uh, no, we filed on it first. You may have been working on it for a decade, but when we heard about it, we decided to file on that patent, and we own it, not the guy or gal who actually created right. and your, it. And your eight years of co- copious notes as you develop the product are totally irrelevant to the process. <laughs> yes, so they changed that, too. Well, that bill was, was pushed by Big Tech. Big Tech started bribing a bunch of right-of-center groups and people in D.C. way back in 2009, 2010. And it started bearing fruit hugely, bigly, uh, Trump's word, um, in 2011 with this, uh, with this bill. Well, of course, these poor little inventors have scrambled to try to protect themselves in this new awful environment. And one of the things they're doing is they're forming patent portfolios. So it's like it's How's like the numbers. Well, if I have three patents and you have five patents, and you know uh, Donovan has six patents, we form a portfolio, and that way there's a dozen patents rather than three. And if they, the, you, the portfolio serves as some sort of collective protection against a, a big tech company or somebody going after one or two of the patents in the portfolio. So this new law, this Pride in Patent Ownership Act. Um, will m- m- require that these companies forming the, or these people forming these portfolios have to notify in advance that they're forming the portfolios. So the big big tech is notified to quickly file PTAB challenges <laughs> to undermine the patents before they get into a portfolio. And of course, uh, the big just, the big players who've got piles of cash can do that, and the little guy or little gal it, it, it gets swamped all over again. Yes. It, it prevents them from doing the one thing they could, they found that offered a little bit of protection in the last 10 years under the American Vents Act, which is form these portfolios. And what they do is the only money they can collect anymore, because it's, it's, it's often cheaper to steal the patent than to pay the licensing fee, is they, they get treble damage, which is triple damage if you prove in court that the person willfully stole your patent. Well, if you don't file your portfolio notifications within the 120 days you lose the treble ruling you you, know, you can't get treble rulings in court that's your punishment so it's 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 written by big tech so it's like it's like they they knock down nine pins with the american vents act and all the inventors are hiding behind the 10th pin and this is congress picking up the spare for them yeah but and, that- and here's the obnoxious here's the really obnoxious part sure Congress doesn't want to vote on the bill standalone and debate it and discuss it and then have to go on the record voting for it. They're attaching it to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is must-pass legislation. So they're trying to slide it through without actually voting on it. You've got all these other rules in the House and Senate, the filibuster rule and all this, and they were all invented by the bodies themselves so they can change them. I wish they had a rule that said... There are things that you have to vote on in isolation so we can actually hold you responsible saying you voted for that idea. You created the concept of must pass legislation. You know, you can say you can argue that it's, you know, national defense, paying for the military is a must pass piece. No amendments, no, no non germane amendments. And there's no way you can rule that a patent law or patent bill is germane to the defense of the nation that's just insane but they're doing it now so they don't have to vote on it and be on the record for it 
That is so cheesy. Seton Motley is the president of Lust Government. Seton, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time as always. Hey, let me tell you about an interesting product I've used. It's a, called a deep penetrating CBD cream. And this stuff's just amazing. Melts into your muscles and joints, your knees, your elbows, your shoulders, your back, even stiff hands. You won't believe how fast it goes to work. Plus, it might double as the best moisturizer you'll ever use. It's called Gen Pop Cream. And it was created by my friends at genericcbd.com. It's on sale right now, but you can try it 100% risk-free. For $5 shipping and handling, they ship you two free samples. You're free to keep one for yourself and give one to a friend. And don't worry, it's not a subscription. You risk nothing. But this might be the best muscle and joint cream on the market today. And if you don't agree, no problem. They'll instantly refund your $5. How's that for a guarantee? Give it a shot. It works. Maybe it can work for you, too. Get your free sample at genericcbd.com, your number one source for generic CBD. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-C, genericcbd.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or illness. It's the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get to your calls in just a moment. If you want to dial in, it's the best conversation in talk journalism, and you can find it right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line, 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And if you'd rather send an email, and I actually got a young lady who wrote to me and said, can I be a naysayer by email? I said, absolutely you can. Go ahead. Uh, that's talk at LarsLarson.com. It's spelled O-N, but we have both domain names. So either way, talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, like we needed another reason not to like the FBI. I used to be a big fan of the FBI. And I think that the, um, the United States needs an agency that does investigations of federal crimes. There are federal crimes that really are not you can't even prosecute them at the state level because they involve moving across state boundaries. That's why every state in America has its own state laws. And then you have some laws which specifically involve going across state lines or, uh, you know, involve involved in doing interstate commerce. A lot of cyber crimes work that way as well. But the FBI lately, the last few years, has shown itself to be so thoroughly untrustworthy. And by that, I mean they have missed many, many terrorist attacks. They have missed many, many mass shootings, missed opportunities. And they seem, especially in the last half dozen years or so, to be so focused on doing favors for one party in particular. In other words, they've become the dirty tricks arm of the Democrat Party. And since then, the number of examples of the FBI just absolutely running roughshod over the civil rights of Americans are just legion. But the one I saw today was actually written up by Molly Hemingway, who's a great writer at thefederalist.com. Uh, and, and by the way, The Federalist is one of those sites. I have no other involvement in them. They've never published anything I've ever written, and I don't take any money from them or anything like that. But The Federalist gave this great example, and I was stunned. Here's the way they headlined it. Agents took more than $86 million in cash and jewelry and gold from the safe deposit boxes of 1,400 American citizens during a raid on a vault company. The vault company happened to be in Beverly Hills, California. And you say, well, those people were probably up to no good. They were probably criminals. 
Oh, yeah? Well, not quite. Lawyers representing a group of deposit box owners claim their items were illegally taken. Not on, you know, and, and if you think I'm, I'm maybe influenced by the raid last month on Donald Trump's home in Florida, yeah, I am. Because the FBI has too many times, especially in the last six years, has lied to judges, has lied uh, about sources of information they use. But in this case, this is just beyond the pale. So this past March, one year after the raid was conducted at a company called U.S. Private Vaults. Now, this is a company that maintains safe deposit boxes. Most of us associate safe deposit boxes, either the plain little metal ones you have in your house Uh, that you may have in your clothes closet or something. And then, of course, there are safe deposit boxes that you find at a bank. But the the business is big enough that apparently this is a standalone private vault company, and what they offer is safe storage for people's valuable stuff. So the company, U.S. Private Vaults, has pleaded guilty to being involved in helping to launder drug money. The company may be bad, but hundreds of the citizens whose assets were seized by the FBI are not suspected of any crime whatsoever. In other words, there's guilt by association. I think it would be generally true to say, well, and let me give you this example. Let's say you found out that somebody was involved in the drug trade and they're they're genuinely a criminal. They've been caught, they've been charged, they've been convicted, they've been sent off to prison. Would it be true to say, then wherever that person stored their ill-gotten gains, whatever bank they put it in, The whole bank and everybody who does business with that bank is also guilty. You'd say, Lars, that's a ridiculous premise. The fact that a drug dealer or an embezzler or somebody who runs a Ponzi scheme also runs his or her money through a bank does not make the bank guilty and doesn't make all the other customers of the bank guilty. And the general rule is that the FBI is allowed to serve search warrants and to seize property when they have a legal cause. Now, what Molly writes about at the Federalist is deposit box holders whose property was taken have now sued the FBI for violating their rights. Robert Fromer, who's a lawyer with the Institute for Justice, which is a libertarian nonprofit law firm, has filed the suit. He says, we brought the suit on behalf of seven clients, but we're actually representing a class. So it's like a class action suit representing at least 400 people. What we've been trying to show for the past several months is that the government's actions violated the search and seizure protections of the U.S. Constitution and the Fourth Amendment. According to the L.A. Times magazine, federal agents mishandled the personal belongings of people who owned boxes that were held at this private vault. They made video and photo records of customers' most sensitive documents, including pay stubs, password lists, credit cards, a prenuptial agreement, immigration and vaccination records, bank statements, and a will. They all made their way into government databases. So the FBI comes in and seizes 1,400 safe deposit boxes. Most of the people whose boxes were seized are not suspected of any crimes. And then the FBI takes a look at all that personal data, and they make records of it. And I'm going to tell you something. Once the FBI has a photo or has a copy of documents that it took, good luck getting it back. They give the example, for example, Jennifer and Paul Snitko, two of the people who kept items at the Beverly Hills U.S. private vaults. The couple explained that they put their will, 
their backup hard drives, old family watches, and a flight log. Uh, the husband, in this case, Paul Snitko, was apparently a pilot. They put the flight log in their deposit box until their personal possessions were seized during the raid. The couple said they kept their valuables. I mean, these are ordinary things of no great uh, monetary value, great personal value to the Snitkos. They put them in the vault because they live in a part of California that is prone to fires. And they were worried that they could actually, you know, if there was a fire and an evacuation call came, that they wouldn't be able to gather up all those personal belongings and take them to a safe place. So they put them into a vault company. And their stuff gets seized by the FBI. And again, the FBI does not suspect either one of those two people of any kind of crime. But they're just two of the people that U.S. private vaults say may have been breaking the law since the establishment had been open for years. It was a member of the Beverly Hills Chamber of Commerce. After the raid, the feds demanded that box holders submit to an investigation before they could get their possessions back. And this young lady, Jennifer Snitko, says it was scary to learn we had to submit our personal info. We didn't do anything wrong. And minutes after they announced a lawsuit with the Institute for Justice, an FBI agent reached out saying, oh, now we're going to give you your stuff back. But other box holders have still not received their property back. And as the Institute for Justice points out, the governor, government had no right to seize their property in the first place. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and your emails in just a moment. But there's a reporter for Real Clear Investigations I've wanted to talk to about a story he wrote that addresses something involving electrical cars. Now, Ordinarily, when we talk about battery cars, we worry about the range. We worry about the materials and how they're mined. We worry about who's selling it to us because Tesla just cut a deal for two big battery uh, supplies uh, that are coming from China. So in other words, we're going to have the future of America not based on Detroit or Tennessee, but based on China. But there's another concern, and that is about privacy. And it may not have occurred to you, it didn't occur to me, but Eric Felton's reporting made this clear. And he joins me now from Real Clear Investigations. Eric, welcome back. Lars, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Now, the story you wrote points out that uh, if we have electric cars, there's a problem. How do we pay for the roads? Because right now, the roads are paid for in large part by uh, registration fees on cars. You can still do that with electrics, but they're paid by diesel uh, taxes and, and taxes on gasoline. You won't have that with electric cars. So... The folks behind the push to go to electric say, oh, that's not a problem. We'll have a way to uh, track your car. And in fact, it'll have the additional benefit that we know what time you're driving, where you're driving, when you're driving, because we'll do congestion pricing to keep the roads unclogged and all this stuff. And and they'll say, well, we'll we'll know that if you're driving, uh, say, on the roads during the most crowded time of the day in any city, uh, you may pay more and you'll pay a tax for the number of miles you drive. Is that the general idea? It is, um, and it's and it's not just speculation. This is uh, it's, it's it wasn't widely discussed, but it's something that's in the bipartisan infrastructure law that um, passed earlier this year. And uh, what it does is it calls on the Secretary of Transportation to do pilot programs where the idea is to track how much people are driving and where they're driving um, to uh, tax them. 
on their driving to replace the fuel taxes that are being lost when people are driving electric cars rather than uh, uh, gasoline-powered cars. Um, And for pilot programs, you'd wonder, well, doesn't it take, you know, uh, having some kind of GPS monitor installed in your car? But actually, most modern cars come with all sorts of data collection devices that are getting information all the time about us, not just our phones in our pocket as we drive along, which act as a kind of GPS device. Um, but, uh, for example, you, you see lots of ads for um, uh, insurance companies that will give you a break if you can prove to them that you're a, a careful driver. And the way those programs work is they draw on the information in the computer and the car that uh, shows that you drove within the um, uh, the speed limit on a given street, that you were careful if you're driving. And those same machines that collect that kind of data can collect data on where and when we were that can be then held in uh, a data repository by the government, uh, by state governments and local governments uh, and the federal government. And supposedly this will just be used for tax purposes, but there's always a concern once you start giving information to the government, um, it rarely stays uh, where it was supposed to be. Because there's the infrastructure bill being proposed by President Biden, as you point out, authorizes testing all manner of data collection methods. And there's no guarantee that once the federal government has it, that when the states come to the feds and say, hey, we could use some of that data to do our transportation planning or even our own tax schemes, that the federal government won't just share that information with the states and they'll do with it whatever they want. You know, a lot of people are in states where there is an easy pass to get you around the toll, the toll booth, but that data is collected. And though easy pass makes a point of saying that they, um, you know, keep people's that doesn't count if the police are looking for records of where you were driving and um, they go and they get a, a subpoena from e- to tell EasyPass to hand the data over. The, basically, the only way that you can keep um, your information truly private is for it not to be collected in the first place. And right, right now what's being discussed or collect the data, but then find ways to keep it private, find ways to wall it off. That's never worked, and it won't work. Well, and in fact, you point out in the story you did, I'm talking to Eric Felton, who's a reporter for Real Clear Investigations, and Eric's been on the show before. You point out that this could include data like, oh, you went to an abortion clinic, or oh, you went to a political rally. Uh, You were at that political rally at a certain time of day, and we saw some of this in the FBI's ability to track people on Capitol Hill and and around the Capitol building on January 6th. Except this won't just be cell phones in pockets. The vehicles will provide them with with almost precise uh, locations of where people go and when they go there. Right. And, um, you know, there, there are people I know who might say to that, well, If you aren't doing anything that you don't want somebody to know about, then you shouldn't do it in the first place. But that's not the kind of um, privacy that I want. Um, I think we've gotten very much in the habit in this high-tech age of letting our devices uh, 
take away our privacy. And it's bad enough when there are private companies doing that. Um, but once the federal government starts collecting the privacy, the data, um, you know, privacy is done. Well, and Eric, I worry about this is a side issue to it. But when cities have said we're going to do congestion pricing involving tolling, well, this would allow them to do it and say, oh, if you need to drive on the most crowded freeways during the most crowded hours of the day, you're going to pay a fee that's that's larger, substantially larger per mile uh, than you do when you're driving at less crowded times. So it'll be a way to manipulate people's behavior. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things that ends up happening is we used to not have a lot of toll roads in uh, in the U.S. And in, in part, that was because toll booths would clog up traffic so much. Nobody wanted to wait for a toll to pay the toll. It was it was less about paying than it was about the um, dis, uh, not wanting to be stuck for a long time paying the toll. But as it gets easier and easier for technologically to take away, um, to, to, to charge a toll on somebody as they drive by at, the, at freeway speed, then you no longer have that disincentive to have tolls, and soon you have toll roads everywhere. Does it surprise you, Eric, that a lot of these plans are coming from the, the most progressive people who claim to be the most progressive? Now, I'm not. I'm a conservative. But they say, we're progressive. And we're going to unclog the freeways by charging poor people so much they have to get off the road so all the affluent people can drive at, at freeway speed. It, it seems seems a bit counterintuitive that the progressives are saying, yeah, we're going to find a way to hammer those poor people right off the road, even though they paid for the road, too. Well, and it supposedly would be a progressive value to care about privacy. Um, certainly, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision was, we'll remember, was based on the principle of privacy that was seen as a very pro- progressive um, uh, uh, judgment at the time. And yet now we see that there isn't as much, um, uh, it, there isn't as much uh, enthusiasm for protecting privacy when it comes to things that are really about privacy, sort of where you go, where you've been, um, the, the basic uh, stuff of privacy and even the stuff like, who do you associate with? That's Eric Feltney wrote a great story for Real Clear Investigations. We didn't cover all of it. You'll want to check it out. Glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and it's my pleasure to be with you. And it's an invitation as well. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. And that throat clearing you just heard is Steve Abramovitz who is the owner of the Mill Creek Inn and the new Snohomish View newspapers and former president of Parents Trust for Washington Children. Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, Lars. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Connection's not so great, but thank you. Okay, I'm sorry about the connection. I I wish we could control your end of it, but you got me curious because you wrote to me and you said, I'm the owner of both the Mill Creek View and the new Snohomish View newspapers and podcasts. Uh, after 20 years in the state, I love and raising two kids with a wife that's a native Washingtonian. We are leaving. Now, 
you're emblematic of an awful lot of emails and phone calls I get from people who say, we love the region, but it's driving us away. And I wanted to get you on and, and sort of get your take on, on what, has, what has affected you so powerfully in the Pacific Northwest that you'd say, we're going to pull up stakes and we're going to move all the way across the country to Tennessee. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. That's actually in process as we speak. Um, it's a sad thing, Lars. Um, the Pacific Northwest is amazing. My wife's roots are here, born and raised. Uh, her siblings are here. Uh, just so many things. Her religious upbringing is here. But over the 22 years that I've been here, I came from California, similar situation at the time when I was starting my career, just a young guy out of college. Um, the tide turned quite a bit, and we're very active in our lifestyle, so we participate in a lot of groups that we think are interesting and entertaining and educational and fun and family bringing um, them up. And we got to see the rot. We got to see the, the poison that had been creeping in and creeping in. And so at the time, we lived in King County. We lived in Seattle. And when my daughter was five, my son was seven, we were a, a swim club that was in the swim league. And it was great. Summer's time like now, out in the sun, healthy, exercise, everybody doing their part to, to put points on the board. And my daughter was, was a champion. And 15 years later, unbeknownst to us, well, 15 years ago, unbeknownst to us, the WAIA passed a transgender law or whatever it is, a bylaw that would allow for um, inclusiveness. No drugs necessary, just everybody should be fair and swim in a lane that they thought was best for them. Nobody ever heard of it, didn't know anything about it. This year, this private club that we're a member of that's family-owned decided it was time to make some bylaws and rules that were much more extreme than that, although using the guise of saying have to get in line with the WA members of. <laughs> and <clears throat> the task force that was put together is people that you just wouldn't think have the right to make these type of decisions because they're not medical. They are somewhat educators. Um, are somewhat coaches, but they are taking some very, very complex, serious issues and dropping on everybody. They were supposed to vote on this April 26th, but I think because of uproar, they moved it to October. And in the meantime, I don't know if you know what that is, but they're the national, international group that said, no, you can't yep. do this yep. uh, at the national level, that kind of had some sanity, but they're pushing this instead on 12 11 and 13 year old and it gets a little complicated but basically they say if you want to compete after the age of 12 you have to have hormone blockers and puberty blockers in order to do that so that means by age of, for one year which means by age 11 you have to have that kicked in so long story short there's no way i was gonna let my daughter i'm just a concerned dad <clears throat> excuse me um Go for this. Okay, because, hold on. One of the things that I I thought you really put a pinpoint on it. You said they're pushing swim teams to open the girls' locker rooms to men. And and now even the Aqua Club's ward in Kenmore, Washington, is going along with it, meaning the practical effect of it is 
you send your you know 10 12 14 year old daughter to swim club and and you say I, by the way it, she'll she, she may be in a locker room with biological men so that too Lars there's both right so they're going to do the locker rooms which means that everybody is in danger if you uh, read any of the statistics say coming out of the prisons um, or things that I read regularly that in Nordstrom's bathrooms or Starbucks bathrooms where they've allowed this. I hate to be the parent who has to deal with that if that one in a million chance happens, if that's what they think it is. If they want to compete after age 14, they have to have had the puberty blockers or hormones for one year prior. But it so also means daughter, that it's, it's a private yeah. organization that's telling parents, if you want your child who was born a girl but now wants to be a boy or vice versa, You've got to go down and get the doctor to dose them up with these puberty blockers, which, as far as I'm concerned, a parent doing that to a child, because it's the parent who's asking the doctor for the treatments, is child abuse. Steve, thanks for coming on. It's a great illustration of why this is a problem. Glad to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Coming up, we've got to talk about Joe Biden and his various spokespeople and Joe's reading from teleprompters. You've got the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.